Hello, and welcome to another episode of Occupied Thoughts, a podcast by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Today, we are bringing you a special conversation that we hosted alongside the Middle East Institute on February 18th. This was a private event that's part of an eight-part series we are currently in the middle of hosting specifically for congressional staff. The conversation was so rich and relevant that we wanted to share it with you now as a podcast. So please bear with the parts of this podcast that sound like a webinar. It was indeed actually a webinar. And if you'd like to watch this conversation as a video or access the many resources mentioned in the discussion, you can find all of that on FMEP's website and FMEP's YouTube channel. We hope you enjoy it and learn from it as much as we did. Without further ado, here is Talking About Apartheid. So good morning and welcome to this second session of our eight-part teaching um, on the Congressional Briefing Series, uh, Hot Topics in Congress. I'm Lara Friedman. I'm president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace, and I'm pleased to be co-hosting this series with Khaled Al-Gindi, who is director of the Middle East Institute's program on Palestine and Palestinian-Israeli affairs. Thanks, Lara. Uh, today's session is called Talking About Apartheid, and to help us uh, dig into this very timely and contentious uh, subject, we've lined up a really excellent group of, uh, of experts. Um, I'll introduce them here briefly in alphabetical order. Um, first, we have Salim Brahma, who is the executive director of uh, the uh, Palestine Institute for Public Diplomacy, PIPD. Uh, next, we have Hagai Alad, who is executive director of B'Tselem, the Israeli Information Center uh, for Human Rights in the Occupied Palestinian Territories. And uh, third, and certainly not uh, least, we have Shirin Tadros from Amnesty International, who is the uh, Deputy Director for Advocacy and Head of the New York Office for Amnesty. So welcome uh, to our, our panelists. You can find their full bios on the FMEP and uh, MAI websites. Uh, our colleagues will put those into the chat box. Um, also keep an eye on that chat box uh, as we have our discussion. Uh, we'll be dropping in Twitter links, uh, Twitter handles, and links to various relevant articles by our, our panelists. Um, just to, um, yeah. So go ahead. <laughs> Over yeah. to you, Lara. Yeah, so keep an eye on the chat box. There's, there's going to be a lot of information flying through that, and that'll all be posted online as well. So if you miss anything, you can always come back to it. So with that, let's get started. Back to you, Khaled. Thanks, Laura. So over the past year and a half or so, or the past two years, um, human rights organizations, uh, including major groups like Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, uh, a number of Israeli organizations like B'Tselem, um, have all come out and uh, concluded that what uh, the, the situation in Israel and Palestine is one that can be accurately described as uh, apartheid. Um, and that includes, uh, that is a, a label that, that applies to both sides of the 1967 line or the green line. And it reflects a growing consensus uh, among uh, human rights defenders, both in Palestine and Israel, as well as internationally. Um, <clears throat> so let me start with Shireen uh, from Amnesty since uh, the the uh, amnesty report came out just over two weeks ago um, and uh, has made quite a uh, quite a splash. So let me just read a, a, a line here from your report, which states, "quote 
Amnesty International's new investigation shows that Israel imposes a system of oppression and domination against Palestinians across all areas under its control in Israel and the occupied Palestinian territory and against Palestinian refugees in order to benefit Jewish Israelis. This amounts to apartheid as prohibited in international law. So Shireen, in very broad brushstrokes, uh, can tell us what led Amnesty to draw this conclusion that this is uh, apartheid and why is that the accurate term for the situation today in Israel and Palestine? Thanks so much, Khaled. Thank you um, for your introduction, for inviting me and also for you know, the two lines which basically summarize 200 pages um, of Amnesty's report. And I think that's what really struck me about not, I don't know if we should call it a report or a book. I mean, it's 190,000 words, over 200 pages. Um, and it was incredibly meticulously documented, analyzed, um, researched for over four years, but it does come up with this very clear and concise conclusion regarding um, apartheid. Um, and honestly, it's not just the four years of, of you know, hiring uh, people even from outside of Amnesty to look at this legal de determination and so on. It's also, I would say about 10 years of internal discussion within Amnesty that had to happen about the word apartheid, about the legal aspects of it and so on, um, before we even started and embarked on, on all of this research. Um, so just to say that this was not a determination made lightly by Amnesty, it is extremely well thought out. It went through levels of approval I will never be able to describe to you. Um, certainly in my time at Amnesty, I've not seen um, such a, you know, such a huge piece of work essentially. Um, so I hope that people engage with it and read with it with that in mind. But, you know, behind the two lines that you read in the conclusion is, you know, a huge amount of evidence and chapters written um, that I hope people, you know, will have a moment to to be able to at least to glance through um, that really talks about two major findings. Right. Which go to support the idea of apartheid. One, um, there's a lot of evidence that we provide to show how Israel treats Palestinians as an inferior racial group. Um, we talk about segregation and oppression um, wherever essentially Israel has control over the Palestinians. So it's very much a look back, um, a step back, if you like, at the situation of Palestinians wherever they live, be it Israel, be it the occupied Palestinian territories, OPT, or be it Palestinian refugees, right? So, um, and, and, and that goes to the sort of the second um, major sort of area that we look at, which is we don't look at the particular policies of an Israeli government. Rather, we look at how successive Israeli governments have explicitly sought to maintain Jewish, uh, a Jewish demographic majority um, in Israel and maximize Jewish control over land and resources in both Israel and the occupied Palestinian territories. And we look at specific policies, um, Palestinians being expelled, fragmented, dispossessed of their land and deprived of, of, of specific economic and, and social rights and all of this treatment essentially amounts to institutionalized regime of oppression and domination, which we believe meet that meets the definition of apartheid under international law. And let me just say, you know, what I've read out is, you know, highlight 
um, like I said, there's a there's there's many more pages that that you can read um, to back up everything that I've said. But I think it's important that to, to understand that this is a very different kind of report, one that you know doesn't seek to look at specific incidents, specific times, but rather uh, you know a more holistic look at what's going on in 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 Israel, the occupied Palestinian territories, and beyond. Thanks, Shireen. And and that's actually a good springboard for, for what I want to ask Hagai. Um, Hagai, a little over a year ago, back on January 12th, 2021, which feels like a lifetime ago, uh, B'Tselem published its own report on this topic entitled A Regime of Jewish Supremacy from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea. This is Apartheid. Could you talk about what led B'Tselem Israel's premier human rights group to conclude that apartheid is the correct term to use to describe Israeli rule over Palestinians. And this is again on, on both sides of the green line. And can you talk specifically about what are the policies that together from an international human rights perspective constitute apartheid? And, and you laid this out also recently in an article which we'll throw into the chat, um, entitled um, Bullets, Brutality, and Bulldozers, What Israeli Apartheid is Really Like? Yeah, thank, thank you for that question. Um, so B'Tselem <clears throat> so was founded in, in 1989 and with an exclusive mandate of only looking at the situation in the occupied Palestinian territories, right? The West Bank, including East Jerusalem uh, and the Gaza Strip. Uh, and if you know you've you've followed B'Tselem's uh, language and thinking over the years, then you would have seen that things have have changed. Things have shifted in our language, which is a reflection of the internal thinking of the organization, right? So initially talking about an occupation and about a prolonged occupation, and then more recently about a one-state reality. Um, and this is both um, a reflection of a, a change, an evolving reality that, uh, that we are you know, waking up to. Uh, but at the same time, it's, I think, also an expression of a, the maturation of the thinking inside the, the organization. Uh, eventually, we came to the conclusion that you know, perhaps we should have come to that conclusion earlier, uh, as many Palestinians have very clearly, that uh, to make a fair analysis of any regime, you need to look at the entire area under the control of that regime, right? Uh, so that goes right at the core of an issue that I'm, I'm sure we'll come back to during this conversation, which is, are there two regimes between the river and the sea, like a permanent democratic Israel inside the green line? Uh, somehow independent of it, there is a temporary occupation regime in the occupied territories, or in fact, is there a single regime that controls the entire territory? Uh, we came to the very clear conclusion that not only there is a single regime, but also that that regime applies the same kind of policies meant to cement uh, the supremacy of one group of people, Jewish individuals like myself, uh, at the expense of the rights of another group. Uh, Palestinians, all this in a reality of uh, demographic parity. Uh, 14 million people living in the river and the sea, about half of them uh, are Jewish and about half of them are, are Palestinian. Um, I think if you focus on recent developments, uh, and as we highlight in the position paper, we do bring up two um, of those recent steps that the Israeli government has taken, right? One is the 2018 passage of the basic law, Israel as the nation state of the Jewish people. Uh, and the other one is what unfolded during 2020, 
uh, with the Trump plan and the open discussion of formal annexation of additional chunks of the West Bank beyond East Jerusalem, which was already next a long time ago. Um, but as we point out in the position paper, it's we need to make the distinction between form and function, right? We don't want people to get us wrong. The basic law from 2018 is not the moment in which policy-based discrimination against Palestinian citizens of Israel has begun. That was the policy since 1948. 70 years later, in 2018, it was elevated in this very open fashion to as close as it gets to a chapter of Israel's constitution through a basic law. Uh, and in a parallel way, the reality with regard to uh, the, the you know, an formal annexation of additional parts of the, of the West Bank. It's not that Israeli policies there have in any shape or form waited for formal annexation. Israel does whatever it wants, whenever it wants. Uh, in the occupied territories, but it was the discussion of openly formalizing it uh, and saying the silent part out loud that Israel intends to continue controlling the entire territory uh, without giving millions of Palestinians political rights, hence uh, apartheid. Um, in the op-ed that you mentioned, thank you for mentioning it, um, I was actually trying to do something, uh, I think much more at an emotion level, because I'm always terrified when we're having these discussions that unless someone that someone might get the impression that unless they have a law degree and they're willing now to read you know 200 pages of for instance the amnesty report as as people absolutely should, but somehow that this conversation is only for legal experts and if you don't have that perspective then you know you can't really weigh in, and in this um, you lose sight I fear of the humanity, the Palestinian humanity that is being crushed day in and day out over decades as a result of these policies. So this is not a theoretical legal argument about some obscure definition. This is about the brutality of this reality. And in that piece, I, I just tried to touch on, uh, you know, a home demolition and extension of um, administrative detention. Uh, of a Palestinian minor, uh, Amal Nahle. I mean, in the meantime, he already celebrated his 18th birthday, but when his detention began, he was a minor. Uh, and the killing of uh, Hajj Suleiman uh, in Omel in, in Khair. So just like to spell out the way this is very real and relentless uh, and horrible. Thanks, Haggai. It's it's uh, it's always important to to remember the human dimension of all of this. Um, Salem, I wanted to ask you. Obviously, the term apartheid it may be new in an American context, but it's certainly not new for Palestinians. Palestinians have, in fact, been using this term for for many many years, uh, at least the past uh, twenty years in particular. Um, can you talk about? Um, uh, why what what apartheid means to Palestinians, why they have seen it as apartheid, why they describe it as such, um, and why Palestinians refer to a one-state reality, as, as Haggai pointed out, and also what it means that others, uh, particularly in the West, are finally also coming to the same conclusion. Thank you, Khaled. It's it's a pleasure to be with everyone. Um, I usually would be speaking to you all from from Ramallah, 
but I'm currently in Cape Town, South Africa. Uh, I've been here for a week learning about the South African experience. And I'm struck by how eerily similar it is in terms of a system. Um, the Israelis uh, took a lot from, from what happened here and have implemented and applied this to, our, to us. Um, in terms of, look, Palestinians have been calling it an apartheid reality for a very long time, and I'm very happy to see more and more human rights organizations uh, be becoming part of that chorus. A thing that I've I've been reminded here is that you know the 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 people the South African people fighting against apartheid and liberation here were also demonized. Their voices weren't taken seriously. Uh, they had many allies in the U.S. in the U.S. Congress as well. Uh, and uh, you know Nelson Mandela was not always a hero. And I think that's part of kind of the system and structure that oppresses people in the places they live, but also abroad. And I think narrative and how we talk about things is a really important uh, issue. What it means to Palestinians, uh, very simply, it's structural violence in, in the most oppressive and brutal form, you know, whether it's the, taking your land, whether it's arresting children, whether it's arresting people from their beds in the middle of, of the night, uh, you know, every Palestinian has the story of apartheid that they can share that will will make your the, the hair on your hands stand up. And so it, it's a very brutal regime. Uh, and while the the South African experience is similar, uh, it, and it has a very unique experience that, you know, might might be relevant to Palestine, but there's also now uh, a meaning of apartheid under international law that also exists in different settings, which is part of what's going on there. So it, it is relevant, but it, in a way it, it also isn't. Um, and that's something I think that's very important, you know. The, so the, the, the reality I live, that I grew up, the only reality I've known, the reality my father and, and my parents have known, the reality of my grandparents was that Israel controls every human being between the, the river and the sea. Uh, and for us, it's Israel and the military is the supreme authority. They deal with Palestinians in Haifa the same way they do in, in the Naqab Desert in the south, the way they do in, in, in Jerusalem and Sheikh Jarrah, the way they do in the Jordan Valley, where I'm from. People, you know, it's a, it's a structural violence that seeks to uh, oppress one people on the behalf and the privilege of the supremacy of others. Um, and so this distinction of, of two regimes that Israel is a democracy uh, and, and uh, then only has an occupation beyond the green line is, is, is false. Um, and so I think this is something extremely important to remember. You cannot be an apartheid regime and be a democracy. That's the antithesis of what this means. Uh, and so I think just to round up my answer, you know, looking back at the trajectory of history, you know, um, many in Congress, uh, many uh, U.S. administrations supported the apartheid regime and ended up being on the wrong side of history. And I think it's important to be conscious and take a courageous, moral, political and legal stand in the face of injustice, regardless of where it is, whether it's South Africa, the U.S. or Palestine.
Thanks, Salam. I want to stick with you for a second and, and pick up on some of what you just said. You, you've spent a lot of time in Washington. You've been on Capitol Hill. You've met with members of Congress and staff. I want you to talk a little bit about sort of what the preferred framework is for people engaging this in the international community and how that is aligned or not aligned with the reality. Um, back in 2020, when the issue was all about, you know, the, the good people fighting Israeli annexation, right? So you had members of Congress coming out, clearly we are against annexation. You wrote a, a really compelling piece, and I'm, I'm constantly learning from you, um, entitled, Palestinians are fighting to dismantle apartheid, not just annexation. Can, can you dig into that a little bit? Because I think, you know, for this is aimed at a Hill audience. A lot of times with a Hill audience, you, you sort of get the don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. We're trying to stop home demolitions. We've spoken out against, you know, what's happening in Sheikh Jarrah, where we, we've said that we won't, we, won't stand, we won't allow for annexation. Why isn't that enough? And how is that disconnected from the actual battle on the ground? Yeah, thanks, Laura. It's a system of violence. It's, it's, it's not just these individual events uh, on their own. I think you you want to go to the root of the issue. Um, I think the, the the issue of annexation brought uh, you know up the the facade of the Oslo paradigm and confronted a lot of people with it. It was going to be the death of it in a sense, the formal death of it. It's been dead for a very long time in my estimation and probably in every Palestinian's estimation. Um, you know the, the annexation would have formally said Israel controls all the land. But if you go to anyone in Jericho, in the Jordan Valley, and ask them, how do you feel about annexation? They would say, hey, I thought I thought I was annexed long ago. Um, so this, this idea of uh, accepting that reality, not having this wishful thinking that we exist in a world that is 1991, where we're just beginning the Madrid process. You know, we live in a land that's completely segregated by ethno-national identity. And this is um, this is the reality we need we need to accept. Sorry, there's people coming and they're being a bit loud. Um, uh, yeah, and and so I think if you accept the death of the Oslo paradigm, it requires you to act. It requires you to accept the apartheid reality. And I think many people have been very comfortable in 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 propping it up and continuing this hamster wheel, which is for us purgatory because we can't move forward without it and it's it's a it's a constant form of gaslighting is like oh but come back to the negotiations you know here's a bit of foreign aid let's address the the Palestinian economy and everything will be good and and that's that's terrible uh, and so it's it's impeding progress and it's impeding our ability to pursue justice and it's comfortable for many uh, but not for us because millions of us suffer while this this is being propped up so I think my message is we need to move forward. We need to accept the reality for what it is and start addressing it with laws, policies that, that remedy the situation. Thanks, Salem. Um, Shireen, I wanna come back to you and picking up on this theme of structural violence and, and oppression. This is systemic, obviously. Um, why, isn't, why isn't it enough to simply describe all of the violations uh, as they are, uh, even you know the structural in a structural way, and kind of as as uh, in the systemic way that that Salam described. Um, why is it so important to use the word apartheid, um, and that 
framework in this context, especially given the, the kind of visceral reactions that, that I'm sure um, folks at Amnesty understood that, that they were going to get. So what does it achieve to achieve this, uh, uh, to use this specific word in this context? Thanks. Yeah, I think it's a really important question because this is what we've been getting a lot in feedback during briefings uh, to you know decision makers in various parts of the world. So if you guys really want to address certain policies that Israel has that are um, violating human rights, why use this perspective of apartheid, right? Why go into this negotiation and this talking with the Israeli government with this bulldozer um, rather than you know a bit more of a soft approach, right? And 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 we've been asked that, I, I almost wanna say in pretty much every meeting that, that we've had. Um, and I'm gonna answer it so much less eloquently um, than Selim did, but in a very similar way, right? And I'll answer it from, as, as someone who worked on the ground for 10 years as, as a you know, conflict reporter, and then someone who, for, you know, since, you know, for the last five years has worked as a human rights advocate on the UN level. And, and I can't explain how important it is because the way in which we have viewed, and I'm, we, I mean, human rights advocate, journalists, uh, the public, the way in which we have viewed this conflict in a very piecemeal way, and as human rights advocates through a lens of IHL, international humanitarian law, and looked at you know, the, the kind of incidents that whether it's home demolitions in Sheikh Jarrah or whether it's a war in Gaza, we've tapped in and tapped out, right? And we've, we've said, we, we've called for investigations on, 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 on the protests by the, by the Gaza border. We've called for investigations into the killing of someone in the West Bank. It hasn't worked. It hasn't worked to end the violations. It hasn't worked to stop the suffering of people. It hasn't worked to bring any accountability or justice. And it's because we're not dealing with the root cause. We're not looking at the system that is creating these human rights violations and making them happen again and again. We just you know, we look at a, at a particular incident and then we move on to the next incident. Um, and I think that you know, this is a system that is institutionalized and it is present. Whether or not we choose to deal with it or bury our heads in the ground is another, you know, it's another discussion. But I, I cannot see either as a reporter for many years or as a human rights advocate, I cannot see how we begin to address these violations and to end them for everyone involved without looking at the root cause, without looking at, at the system that has made it, perpetuated it and, and made it. Thanks, Shanine. I want to pick up on on that question about the idea of the the term, the term itself, um, and just turn to Hagai. And Hagai, you also have spent a lot of time in the past meeting with members of Congress and with staff. Um, you know, I document everything Congress says related to Israel Palestine. That that's something I do, and I publish it. Um, and and there was huge outrage in Congress over Amnesty's decision to use the term apartheid more than we saw about Human Rights Watch or B'Tselem in the past. I think because Amnesty is just bigger and this got a much bigger splash. Um, we had many members of Congress insisting that applying the label apartheid to Israel is inherently anti-Semitic, which we've heard before um, from some in Congress. And we even heard some suggesting that the human rights organizations using the term are aligned with terrorists. Um, what is strange, I think, for a lot of us hearing that is that a number of Israeli sources, not just Israeli human rights groups, but Israeli politicians like Ehud Barak and Zippy Livni and Ehud Omar have used the term apartheid 
generally in the sense of warning that if Israel doesn't make peace, this can happen someday. One of those horizons, which I guess uh, recedes as you continue to advance towards it. But the term apartheid has been in that discussion for, for more than a decade. Can you talk about that disconnect between how um, the term is viewed in Congress in the US in the US context and how it is seen in Israel? Absolutely. Uh, maybe just before I, I go there, I just want to relate to some things that Shireen and Salem have said. So also, like, obviously, from our, I think it should be obvious from our perspective, one of the main drives at uh, spelling this out is this understanding that we arrived at that, I mean, obviously, the wrong analysis leads to the wrong conclusions. Like, we need to make the correct analysis if we want to move towards a future based on, on, on justice and equality and not on uh, domination and, and, and oppression. Uh, but it's more sinister than that because the, and here I, I circle back to what, what, what Salim was saying before, that there's a lot of appetite, a lot of motivation, a lot of propaganda, which is aimed at keeping things at that wrong analysis, because that is very convenient. That is very convenient for allowing this reality to go on. That is very convenient for people that want to pretend that they're, you know, fighting the occupation and, you know, two-state solution and future negotiations and so on as an excuse not to actually address what has been playing out over decades by this, by this point in time. Uh, so this has become bankrupt, but there's a lot of investment uh, in trying to perpetuate that, and it needs to be called out. Now, in terms of, you know, Israelis uh, saying apartheid uh, for quite some time, but, you know, if someone else does, and definitely if Palestinians do, then, you know, that's uh, unacceptable. Uh, it's just one example of many other examples, because one of the expressions of this oppressive a supremacist reality is who is allowed to, to talk, who is allowed to say certain things, right? Uh, and there's so many other examples of this, uh, you know, pathetic uh, situation. I'll just, you know, bring up a few, right? So it's totally okay for Israelis to talk about, you know, domination and control of the entire area between the river and the sea, right? That is an expression that is like totally normal uh, for Israeli Jews to use. But if a Palestinian uses that phrase, th that's immediately interpreted as violent incitement, right? Okay. Uh, it's totally fine for Israelis uh, to talk about, not to, to talk about, but also, in fact, to implement a reality past, present, and future in which there is no equality, right? Uh, but if a Palestinian brings up a future in which, you know, God forbid everyone is going to have equal rights, that that is immediately interpreted uh, as a call for the annihilation of the state of Israel, okay? Um, it is totally fine for Israeli Jews uh, to, on the one hand, say that the Nakba never happened, but at, then from the other side of their uh, mouth to say that, but, you know, but one day maybe we'll finish the job, right? Uh, but if a Palestinian brings up the, the Nakba, I mean, they find themselves against an Israeli law that is aimed to silence uh, any discussion of the, of the Nakba, right? So this is just a part of like a bigger picture uh, of this reality. This is bullshit, and we need to call it as, as such. It's unacceptable, um, and it needs to stop. Now, it's not just propaganda because someone is, uh, is angry. 
It is very thoughtful. And this is one of the lessons that Israel has learned from apartheid South Africa. That, and, and that's really the Israeli success, I think, so far. It is the success of implementing apartheid without becoming South Africa in the eyes of the world. And one of the main mechanisms this has done is through this control over who is allowed to say what and delegitimizing voices that call this out. And false accusations of anti-Semitism and support of violence is one of the main tools that Israel is using in that, in that sense. And so far, it's been successful from the Israeli perspective. And this is the reason why this is continuing. We need to prove Israel wrong in this sense as well. Thanks, Haggai. Um, it's, a, it's a very compelling and interesting point that you raised about how so much of the debate has to do with the identity of the people making certain claims rather than, or in addition to uh, what is actually being said. Um, if I could, Haggai, just to stick with you for a moment, you mentioned South Africa and, and that example. Uh, which is obviously when we hear the word apartheid, we automatically think of uh, South Africa. It is, after all, uh, uh, an Afrikaner word. Um, and so a lot of people would argue that there are so many differences between the reality that existed in South Africa uh, under apartheid and the reality that exists today. In particular, uh, you have many groups of, of Palestinians with different legal statuses, including a sizable group who are citizens of Israel who vote in elections, um, uh, who serve in various uh, positions um, and you know, are judges uh, and members of the parliament. And even in this particular moment, there are, there's a Palestinian political party that is part of the ruling coalition. Um, so all of that, I think is, is, you know, some people would say, well, it can't be apartheid because um, you have at least some Palestinians who, who have uh, something uh, resembling equality. Um, what is your response to, to those who would say, we, it can't be apartheid because it's, it's too different from South Africa? Yeah, so I mean, the first point is that it doesn't need to be identical to South Africa in any shape or form. And that is a point that's been made by Human Rights Watch, by al Haq, uh, by other Palestinian colleagues, obviously by Amnesty uh, and by, by B'Tselem. So we're well aware that the moment one says apartheid, most of the you know, audience would immediately think about South Africa, and indeed people should. But in the meantime, in the decades that have passed, apartheid has become an independent uh, legal and, and political uh, term, which is describing a reality in which there is a regime that is working to uh, you know, establish a reality and perpetuate it in which one racial or ethnational group uh, is dominating another uh, group in, in, in society. Uh, so that is the essence of apartheid. And when we say that, you know, Israel and Palestine is apartheid, then that's what we mean, that the same essence is in existence uh, here. Um, and also, again, going back to my point that you don't need to be a legal expert uh, to see through these things, uh, I mean, apartheid as, as, you know, an international crime in international law, uh, was defined, you know, decades after 1948 when apartheid began in uh, in South Africa, right? Uh, but people didn't wait for that, you know, international legal definition to see it as something that is like morally unacceptable, right? Because I think um, 
you know, good faith individuals have a tendency, even without having, you know, three law degrees, to identify injustice and reject it, right? And this is why rejection of apartheid South Africa didn't wait uh, for the passage of, you know, the apartheid convention and the Rome Statute and so on, all developments that happened uh, some decades uh, later. Um, now, having said that, Yes, there are many similarities. Uh, there are also differences. We point them out uh, as we discuss uh, the situation here. Uh, no historical analogy uh, is ever exactly identical, right? Nor, nor should it be. Uh, but if I just focus on you know, that piece of the critique that there is a fraction of the Palestinians under Israeli control, Palestinian citizens of Israel, that are less oppressed compared to other Palestinians under Israeli control, that doesn't change the apartheid reality uh, of, you know, of the nature of the Israeli regime, right? Uh, by the way, also in South Africa, uh, the distinctions were more elaborate uh, than just uh, having blacks and, and whites, right? It was more intricate than that. And it's also more intricate uh, in Israel-Palestine. But the bottom line is the same bottom line, right? That there is no single square inch between the river and the sea in which a Jewish person and a Palestinian person are equal. The best case for a Palestinian in this reality is indeed to be a citizen. But in that case, they are by law, by practice, and by policy, second class, right? Uh, and then there are other distinctions for Palestinians in worse situations uh, under Israel's uh, control. Um, I think that, uh, you know, again, we go back to, um, you know, Salim was talking about, you know, the, the similarities that, 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 that he sees while, while being in, in South Africa. And uh, I think one of the differences is that Israel has learned some mostly propaganda lessons uh, from apartheid South Africa. And in retrospect, maybe like, you know, Africaners might say, you know, how naive they were, right? I mean, they openly stated that they're an apartheid regime. Israel, you know, is up in arms against that quote-unquote accusation uh, because obviously we're the only democracy in the Middle East, trademark, right? So the, the propaganda lessons have been learned. Uh, it's the success of doing it while getting away with it. And I think this is why maybe it's more of an effort to uncover, but it doesn't make the reality less apartheid in any shape or form. Thanks, Haggai. This, I love that the conversation is flowing very naturally into our where we sort of want it to go, because my next question is for Salem. And Salem, I, I think we're going to put into the, to the, the chat. Um, there was a tweet that you posted last June, and people should, by the way, follow all three of our guests on Twitter. They do a great job covering things in real time. Um, you wrote, and this was around news that Israel was planning to build a new development on the ruins of the Palestinian village of Lifta, which is in West Jerusalem. And you wrote, quote, apartheid is the vehicle for this process of erasure. It's fragmentation, segregation, tiered system of rights and control over Palestinians meant to suffocate us to the point of belonging to a bygone era. We can't be liberated without its complete dismantlement. Now, that was talking about something happening in West Jerusalem. I want you to, to talk to us a little bit about the what we're seeing as sort of a growing what I think is truly a growing sense of solidarity and, and shared 
um, a more common sense of, of, of identity across the Green Line, particularly as we saw it sort of really bursting to, onto the scene with last year's, um, the, the war in, last May. Um, and, and what that means for this identification of apartheid on both sides of the Green Line, but also um, as we've seen in the news, you have, you know, Palestinian citizens of Israel, you know, major political figures saying, no, no, I disagree, it's not apartheid. You know, what does that mean? How relevant is that? And, and to the extent that you're comfortable, I mean, Amnesty has applied this term apartheid, not just to the West Bank and Gaza, not just to Green Line Israel, but to refugees as well, which is a really interesting framing when you think about the large number of Palestinians living outside of the area um, who are barred by Israeli policy from, from any claims to, to their property, let alone to being able to come back. Um, so if you can take on any or all of that. Thanks, Laura, that's a, that's a lot of pressure. Um, I just I, before I answer that question, I have a very interesting uh, example of uh, the propaganda Haggai mentioned that I think Israel picked up from the South African apartheid regime. Uh, if maybe people don't know this, but uh, for a long time there was a media blackout in South Africa. Uh, there was no coverage of the reality of the apartheid reality after the the National Party took took over and uh, some journalists were able to smuggle out some footage of people living in townships and living through this permit pass law regime. And the, the apartheid regime came out and said, this can't, this can't be here. It must be, uh, uh, must be Africans in some other country. Uh, you know, and it, it's the same, it's to, to the playbook, to the play, to, to, to every play, it's, it's almost the same in that sense and in the propaganda, but to take on, on your, your question, Lara, I think, look, I think Palestinians, I mean, whether we're, whether in the West Bank, Jerusalem, Gaza, uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel, refugees, we all share the same identity. And that identity really came came to be and, and, and resurfaced very powerfully during the unity in the Fada in, in April, May, and June of last year. And so we are all being affected by the system in different ways, right? So and, and the way the Israeli regime dealt with that unity in the Fada was very similar. It didn't matter where you were. Whether you were in Jerusalem, whether where you you were in in Gaza, whether you were in in in, in Yaffa, Haifa, Lid, um, you were dealt with the same because it doesn't really differentiate with you at at the core of things. The system sees you as the other, as the lesser than, and so as as less than human. So apartheid uh, is something that resonates with all of us, regardless of where we are, whether we're in Palestine or whether we're refugees in in a camp, because. It's a it's a spectrum that that didn't stop at any juncture in history. It's continuing, and it started when when you know hundreds of thousands of Palestinians were forced off their land and had to flee elsewhere. So I I'm that in in a sense is something I really appreciate about the Amnesty Report because it it put the refugees at the center of of this matter. Um, and and look, I think um, we're not a homogeneous society either. Right, um, I think that's a really important thing to remember. And it wasn't the politicians who were uh, leading uh, the, the the unity in the father. It was young people. It was activists. It was uh, you know women and, and men and, and children who were out demonstrating for our liberation. And so you know we can we can always count on some politicians to act in their immediate self interest and lose sight of the bigger picture. Right, uh, you know, having a Palestinian in in the Knesset doesn't 
make it any less of an apartheid regime, right? And I think that's a very important point to, to remember. So uh, tokenizing a Palestinian uh, to cover the crime uh, is, is also uh, an old tried and tested, tested tactic that should be seen right through. So I think that's, that's my answer to, to those who claim it's not apartheid. Thanks, Salem. Um, Shirin, I want, I want to come back to you. Um, as, we, uh, as we've discussed, the amnesty as an institution and the report itself have been viciously attacked um, over the past few weeks. Can you respond to some of the most common lines of attack that have been used? Uh, we've, we've already talked about a few, but one of, the most, um, one of the most common, I think, is that amnesty is unfairly singling out Israel, that it's applying a different standard. Um, a much more rigid one, uh, that it is ignoring uh, other much more serious violators elsewhere in the world uh, as a result, um, that amnesty uh, is, uh, is ignoring human rights violations by Palestinian authorities, um, uh, or that they're relying on information from Palestinians that is uh, therefore unreliable or inaccurate. Um, what, what are some of the most common things that people are leveling against the report and, and what is your response to those lines of argument? Sure. If I, if I may like take a step back though, because I mean, firstly, the, the, the backlash um, tended to dominate the, the headlines in the first sort of 24 hours because the Israeli government got a leaked copy or, or, or rather um, found themselves a copy of the report. And then, you know, immediately we were, we were branded as anti-Semitic before, you know, a page of it was published, right? And, the, and I would say that in the, in the 48 hours after um, the report was, was launched and published, we had just an incredible reaction. A lot of it, a lot of it, very positive and momentum growing, and really heartfelt messages that even I received from people around the world and from Palestinians talking about what it meant for them to have this kind of acknowledgement. But you're absolutely right that there was also a very aggressive um, backlash from the from the government of Israel, but also um, from individuals, groups, and so on. I mean, personally, um, I got dozens of hate mail to the point where my inbox collapsed completely. Uh, I, I couldn't read every single one, but I genuinely tried to um, read as much as I could. And what I could say is a common factor between what the sort of messages I was getting, and isn't it great now we have all these different platforms of Facebook and Twitter and so on, so you can be attacked on multiple platforms at the same time. So, uh, you know, the, the common thread between those sorts of, you know, individuals that were messaging and what the Israeli government was saying was that no one was addressing the substance of the report. And as I keep saying, this was 190,000 words. There's 200 pages worth of, of you know, documentation and research and information. And nobody was talking to us about a single word of the report. It was all just your bias. And it's very difficult to have a conversation based on that. And even in our you know, private briefings, when, when we were faced with this, I would ask back, sure, what is bias? Let's have a discussion on the substance, because I, I, I do think that if we continue just to address this idea of bias in this sort of general way, it, you know, we, we fall into this trap of not talking about apartheid and the policies anymore. We just sit there, we sit back and we just talk about how we're not biased. So I, honestly, I can sit and tell you 
we have made the apartheid determination, not just in Israel, but also in Myanmar. We have at least my team, over 70 countries that we deal with and at the Human Rights Council, the GA, the Security Council, which we bring up. We have dozens of outputs on um, human rights abuses committed by the Palestinian Authority and Hamas. I can go on and on and on to defend ourselves, but really what we're doing is distracting from what we should be talking about, which is that there is a system of apartheid happening and, and, you know, the conversation should be about the substance of what, what it, the policies and how to dismantle them and what they amount to and what can be done by the international community. Um, I will have that conversation with anyone who, who, who wants to have it. But I, 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 we do feel, you know, even as an organization that we're trying to slowly sort of not, not be constantly engaged in these conversations about bias and anti-Semitism when they, they simply just have no nothing, no substance, um, um, you know, beyond that, beyond the sort of general term. I will say, I, I will acknowledge one thing, and, and I think I've really, you know, felt it over the last couple of weeks, which is, you know, I, I've also received very genuine messages from, um, you know, Jewish friends, Jewish Israelis that I don't know, and they've used this sort of, you know, one person used a really, you know, it really, it really hit me what they said, which is that I find it, I find it upsetting and confusing. Um, and I think that we should acknowledge that I think, you know, when we talk about apartheid to people who don't necessarily, who have grown up with a vision of Israel that's very, very different to what Israel really is, it is quite upsetting and confusing when these words are, are said and we talk about it from this perspective. And, and I think that should be acknowledged, but the answer to that must be reading more and educating more and understanding more. It cannot be to put your head in the sand and not engage because this is just too upsetting. Um, so I do want to acknowledge that there's a, that there's a genuine, that, that for, in some quarters, there's, there's a really genuine feeling of being hurt by seeing Israel in this light. But that doesn't stop the fact that, it, that, that this is what's happening and, and we have to engage with it. Yeah, thanks, Shreen. And, and you put your finger on it. Um, what I, for me, observing Congress, what appeared to me to be the, the, the general thread, which was, and it started even before the, the report was actually issued, which was, don't even bother reading it or engaging it. It is based, you know, anti-Semitism, bias, whatever, and in, implicitly suggesting that to engage on the substance is anti-Semitic or biased, right? It, it's, a, it's a very convenient way of saying, we're not even gonna look at anything you're raising. We're just going to say that you are illegitimate and anything you've said is illegitimate. But talking about that, I mean, the reaction to the amnesty report, the reaction against it hasn't merely been rhetorical, right? So we saw what sure looked like attempts um, to suppress or limit access to it. What we saw on YouTube where YouTube had essentially restrictions on accessing the video. You know, there's a place where people had to put in their age or put in a credit card to prove their age, you know, warning that it's not appropriate material. Um, on Google, I don't know if it's still the case, but in many parts of the world, if you Googled Amnesty or the report, the first thing that came up was a, a, a website from the Israeli government attacking Amnesty. Um, there is a, um, an effort going on now in the UK from a pro-Israel lawfare organization trying to strip uh, Amnesty of its uh, charitable status. Um, there are campaigns targeting Amnesty's donors, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Can you talk about 
the perils and costs for groups like Amnesty International when it comes to taking a stand, when it comes to, you know, you've got the issues you cover everywhere in the world, but when you use those, when those issues come up with respect to Israel, the risks that you run and the calculation you have to make when you say we're not going to hold Israel to a different lower standard than the rest of the world. And, and can you talk about how you balance this? I mean, it, it's striking watching even today members of Congress happily referencing Amnesty's reports on any other country in the world, but you weigh in on Israel and suddenly it's like, you know, it's almost like black and white. There, there are those who seem to be suggesting either the human rights organizations create an exception for Israel or damn them all, we don't need human rights organizations. Yeah, and, and it's really been remarkable to watch how disingenuine um, the, the US response has been in that way. As someone who's sort of been asked by um, different administrations to brief them on you know whatever situation, be it Tigray or Xinjiang or so on, and then suddenly on this one, we're, we're not credible enough. Um, yeah, disingenuine certainly comes to mind. But um, I don't know if this is you know glass half full here, but just as, as all of us have been observing this and living it for, for so long, for decades, I, I guess part of me thinks this has always been the case. This is the sort of, you know, um, US response, uh, response internationally. But the fact that it's called out in this way, the fact that that clip of the press conference where the spokesperson responded to the AP reporter, I'm sure everyone saw it and, you know, and was sort of tongue tied as he tried to explain why Amnesty is, dis, you know, is not credible when it comes to this report and is credible in other reports. I think that is making a difference. I, I truly do. I think that, you know, 10 years ago when I, you know, was living in the occupied Palestinian territories and, 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 and you know, pulling my hair out at the fact that no one seemed to care or listen or be highlighting these sorts of things. So yes, there, there is a price to pay. And I think that you, you did a good job at, in, you know, in your introduction of sort of listing the, our, our current perils. More, more are to come. I have no doubt that in coming months, maybe coming years, even individually and as an organization, we will face more little um, microaggressions, if not bigger aggressions against us and our work. But this is what happens when you, know, you work in this field and it's what happens when you address these big human rights violators. And it happens with us with China, it happens with us with Russia. Uh, we all live with you know, these, these sorts of threats, um, so ex explicitly and, and implicitly. Um, but it doesn't change the fact that the system exists and it doesn't change the fact that when you look at these human rights violations that are taking place in different countries and what happened in South Africa, they have one common thing, which is it's unsustainable and it has to end. So now we're at a point, I believe, of not saying, you know, is the US ever going to admit that this is apartheid? It's more like, when is the US ever going to admit that this is apartheid? When are other governments going to see what's actually there and present on the ground? And not just Amnesty, but my goodness, the amount of organizations that have come out in the last five years to, to document this and the amount of people and lawmakers and, and prime ministers and presidents who were by mistake or off the record and so on have used this word. This is the genie is out of the box here. It is now a question for these governments of, you know, what side of history do you want to be seen on? Because this is a growing conversation. This is happening. And it's about, you know, 
acknowledging it's happening and dealing with it. The more they, you know, decide not to engage, the more we just deflect to your bias and your anti-Semitic, you're going to end up, you know, on your own on a table shouting, you know, your anti-Semitic to a room full of governments and people and civil society and so on, because it's an isolationist approach. Thanks, Shireen. I think that's a really important point. I mean, if we were talking about one organization somewhere in the world that used the term apartheid, it might be easy to dismiss for one reason or another, but we're talking really about a consensus among so many different organizations um, uh, in, in different contexts. And um, uh, Hagai, I wanted to turn to you and sort of pick up on this point that Shireen raised uh, earlier about how upsetting the report is to, to people. And then there are a lot of people um, including many who would describe themselves as liberal Zionists, uh, who might even be sympathetic to a lot of the factual findings in uh, your reports, as well as amnesties, um, uh, but are still kind of, you know, deeply troubled with the whole apartheid framing, um, especially as it relates to, you know, beyond simply the occupied territories. You know, we're talking about both sides of the green line. As you said, there is one regime um, that uh, that deals with everyone from the river to the sea and beyond, because of course, uh, how how Israeli policies affect Palestinian refugees. Um, so, can you talk a, a little bit about uh, uh, the, the the statement that um, you've written uh, and that you said earlier that uh, all Palestinians living under Israeli rule are are treated as inferior in terms of their rights and status to Jews in the same area. I think you said something similar earlier about there's no place between the river and the sea where Palestinians and Israeli Jews uh, are equal. Could you unpack that a little bit for us, but also um, if, if you could uh, address the issue of what is the way forward? Um, what can or should be done to hold Israel accountable, uh, to dismantle the system, um, uh, how, how do you respond to people who insist in effect that any effort to hold Israel accountable um, or that ends these kinds of uh, practices will mean an end to the state of Israel itself? Yeah, um, thanks for that question. Maybe we, just before I go there, I wanted to relate to, well, I guess it's also cover, in a way covered by, by this question, but by something that Sharina said before about like, you know, being a, uh, you know, in, in private briefings and like often getting this response, but but is this really helpful? Uh, like, you know, maybe use some other term and be more pragmatic, be more practical. Uh, and I, I think like one of the ways to, to address it, I mean, besides like you know, just the need to be factual uh, and, and, and genuine is um, to ask the following question, like, you know, is really tiptoeing around Israel's white fragility uh, how constructive has that been uh, for the last, you know, who knows how many decades already, right? Because like all those other policies, right, of pretending, you know, the success, right? Uh, that has brought so much uh, equality and rights to, to Palestinians in, you know, under Israel's control. It's it's ridiculous, right? I mean, we see we have the receipts, right? We see the results of that kind of failed policy by the international community. Um, so, 
it's very difficult to defend. It's already become very, very difficult to defend uh, years earlier and even more so uh, now. And, and, and that's a good thing uh, that we have this growing consensus uh, between Palestinian, Israeli, and international human rights organizations all coming to you know, the same conclusion, saying it, you know, some, some variations, but basically uh, the same headline and the same bottom line. Um, how is this going to, to change things? Um, well, it needs to arrive at ending uh, Israeli impunity. That is the key aspect. Uh, and you know, we've said it numerous times, uh, there is very little reason to, to expect any significant change in policy, as long as the, you know, the, 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 the equation of costs, like who's paying a cost for this reality and who isn't, doesn't, doesn't change. And that spells out that, again, the Israeli success of not only maintaining this and looking like a democracy in the eyes of you know, Israeli propaganda and those that succeeds in convincing, but what goes hand in hand with that propaganda win is the perpetuation of Israeli uh, impunity. We need to have accountability, and that's the essential aspect. Uh, and the desire to you know, reframe the understanding of the reality in the river and the sea isn't academic, right? It's not because we're a think tank and we think that this is going to be uh, more aesthetically uh, pleasing uh, description of, of reality or something like that. It's A, because it's correct, and B, because the hope is that the correct analysis uh, will bring to the correct conclusions, and the headline of those conclusions is introduction, finally, of, uh, of accountability. Now, for those that are you know, still trying to hold on to this you know, democracy plus uh, occupation worldview, and I understand that it's upsetting, uh, and I have no issue with that. I think it should be upsetting. It is very upsetting. It is much more upsetting for the people living on the receiving end of this, of this reality. Uh, but also, you know, for those that have, you know, somehow genuinely held, succeeded in holding uh, this worldview as if there's like, you know, a good Israel and there's a bad occupation, and if we'll just get rid of the other, then we'll you know, save somehow out of this mess good Israel. Um, yeah, I think you know, waking up from that fantasy slash nightmare uh, can be painful, and I appreciate that, but it's essential. Uh, there's, no way, there's no way around that. Um, and to the point of you know, people suggesting somehow that it's even a possibility, I mean, Sam already said that earlier, that you could have a democracy that, you know, even if you would pretend that it's only occupation in the, in the occupied territories, I mean, that's a joke. It's like you'd have said in, you know, apartheid South Africa, that there's no, the apartheid is only in the Bantustans, right? It's ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense. The government that does apartheid does apartheid, end of story. But obviously it's more than that because it's the same policies, the same policies of re-engineering space and re-engineering demography are the same policies since 1948 and the same policies since 1967. This is what Israel has been doing to Palestinians from the get-go. And this is what Israel is still doing on both sides of the Green Line. It's a single regime with the same policies um, 
And as painful as it might be uh, to acknowledge, it has to be acknowledged. And that pain needs to be, you know, acknowledged with an asterisk, because as I said before, that is nothing compared to the pain of people that are living under this brutal regime. Thanks, Haggai. And, and Salam, I want to follow up directly on, on that last question to Haggai. Um, you know, it's been striking to me listening to some of the reactions to the amnesty report. And we've heard these before, but it's really, it's in sharper relief now. One of the reactions that we've heard, and sometimes it's pretty explicit, is a reaction which basically boils down to, fine, maybe Israel is doing those things, but it has to, because if it doesn't do those things, it can't survive. I mean, which is striking. It's basically sounds like, you know, a positive statement of saying Israel is an apartheid state, but we support it being an apartheid state because it exists. Its identity is a state that can only be described as apartheid. It's really quite amazing. So can you talk about this and the fact that it's striking this argument often exists side by side with the same people who are saying, you know, shared values, liberal democracy, blah, 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 all that stuff. You know, this is, I, I, see, I think this is really enlightening. Uh, I, I'd be curious to have you sort of flesh out how you see those arguments um, aligning and misaligning. But also going back to the, the end of the question to Haggai, how do you see the end objective? I mean, dismantling apartheid is, is a path along the way. For people who say, ah, you're using dismantling apartheid as a trick to destroy Israel. <laughs> what do you say to that? Thanks, Lara. I think I, I laughed at the question because it's deeply, deeply wrote, rooted in uh, a racist conception that it's okay to oppress a people because it works out for their oppressor. I mean, that's the logic. You know, we withhold the freedom and liberation of a people because it, it, it suits us. And, and I, I'm talking about the logic. Uh, here, not, not a comparison of a system, but we don't have to go far in American history uh, to understand the similar argument built on similar logic that the liberation of a people or the freedom of a people doesn't suit their captors. And it's essentially the same logic, uh, and it's extremely twisted uh, to, to, to make. And the fact that people are saying it explicitly is, is shocking to me. Uh, at, at, that we today, uh, people who profess to hold progressive values or liberal values, can can come to terms with this conclusion, and it's it's beyond me. To answer your question about what do I envision, I think I believe in human dignity. I believe in uh, human equality. I believe in justice, and there can be no peace without justice. Uh, and I think that's the starting point of any conversation. Uh, and I believe that whether you're Jewish, whether you're Palestinian, if you're on this land, there needs to be a social contract for all of us that governs all of us based on those principles and those values. Um, and it's not about, uh, you know, the destruction of, of a state or it, this is a fundamentally racist system. And it needs to be dismantled. That's, that's it. I mean, I, we don't have to use all these legal terms. It is a fundamentally racist system that gives you rights based on your ethno-national identity. It is deeply violent. And the fact that the US is giving 
Israel 3.8 billion in military aid, it is perpetuating that violence and not allowing us to, to, to dismantle the system. So my freedom as a human being, my liberation as a human being, and building that social contract of equity and justice and freedom and rights for all, right, who live regardless of ethno-national identity, is facing that impediment that is forced upon us by the US. And, and that for me is a, a very important point to make given who we're speaking to today. Thanks, uh, thanks, Salem. Um, so we only have about uh, seven minutes left, and so in this in this final round, I want to give you each a chance to to make any uh, closing points that you you weren't able to raise. Um, but also, I want to tie this. I'm going to put this question to to all three of you. Um, as you remember, back in October, um, Israel designated six Palestinian organizations, including three very prominent. Uh, internationally renowned human rights groups as terrorist organizations. Is this part of the same effort? Is the kind of um, hysterical demonization of the amnesty report, the, the, uh, um, you know, the, the targeting of human rights defenders on the ground, uh, particularly Palestinian ones, are these connected? And is there a connection to the broader effort that we're seeing uh, at, at the international level, whether it's uh, Palestinians pushing the, the UN Human Rights Council or the International Criminal Court, uh, both of those are sort of moving along um, according to their own dynamic. Are these things connected in your view? And then I'll give you a chance each to, to make any uh, concluding statements. So let's start with uh, Shireen. Sure. I mean, I want to say that almost everywhere I've worked where we've had problematic um, human rights situations, um, there's almost been a, a textbook playbook um, that happens, which is attacking anyone who has a different narrative to the narrative of the state. Um, it happened certainly when I was living and working in Egypt, where um, there was suddenly NGOs that were deemed terrorist organizations, a big trial that continues, in fact. Um, it happens in many other countries I could cite that we have no time for. So there is nothing original about what the Israeli government is doing in terms of demonizing, you know, this this different narrative. Um, and, and as a journalist, as soon as you arrive um, in Israel and, and you go and you get your government press card, um, you're sent all this information right um, from from these organizations to sort of form your narrative and form the language with which you're going to use to describe what's going on. They even take you, one group takes you on a helicopter where it very cleverly avoids any settlements, but goes around just to show you how, how slim Israel is and how it's, it's, it's you know, all of its neighbors, um, you know, are dangerous and, and, and aggressive against Israel. So this security rhetoric and the, and, and the narrative is, is, is extremely strong. Um, so, yeah, I think that that it, we we cannot see that as part of this sort of attack on on um, the you know the increasing attack really on a 
situation where the government is saying one thing, but the reality on the ground is very different. And in a world which is so open now in terms of social media and taking videos and pictures and whatever, I think it's becoming harder um, by the day to, to keep that up. I mean, I remember the first Gaza war I covered in 2008 when people didn't even believe what we were reporting, me and my colleague, because it was just impossible that the Israeli um, army would do such a thing to children. And then now fast forward to the last Gaza war and look at the kind of coverage um, that it got and, and the outcry from, from different areas. So I just want to, I guess, end with a little bit of more um, of, a, of, of a sort of of a more brighter um, feeling here, because you can look at this and see how difficult the situation is to get out of and, and how little progress we've made. But I, I feel differently. I think that the last few years have made a huge difference. And this is a growing movement to reveal what is going on in the ground. It, we cannot go back. You know, we are not going to go back to the old narrative. And I think people are awake to that. And it's really about, um, you know, the governments and lawmakers getting up to speed with what people on the ground in all different countries are, are realizing. And I think that's just a matter of time. Um, Hagai, same question. Yeah, I mean, maybe I'll use this time to uh, address the last part of the previous question, which I just realized that, that I didn't and I, I wanna pick that up. Uh, and just to, to say how outrageous it is uh, to make such an accusation against people that are trying to advance freedom, equality, and justice. Uh, apartheid ends with dismantling apartheid. Uh, and I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised that uh, at the time of apartheid in South Africa, uh, such accusations were targeted against those that wanted the dismantlement of that, uh, of that regime. But I think it also needs to be uh, flipped on its head because we need to understand, I mean, just to spell out the motivation uh, of those that are you know, making these outrageous accusations. They're not just making these accusations, they're making them with an effort to perpetuate what is in fact a racist, violent, oppressive, unjust, unlawful regime, right? So this is not just propaganda for the sake of propaganda. This has real consequences in the real world. Uh, and they try to claim the moral high ground by attacking those that are calling for, for equality. It's beyond ridiculous. Uh, Salam, you'll have the last word. I don't want to take long. I just want to say this. Um, don't fund and finance structural violence and a racist regime and don't stand in the way of justice, whether it's at the ICC or anywhere else. And it's, it, I wish we didn't live in a world where our liberation and freedom depended on US policy, but it does. So you have a very big role to play. Uh, and I hope you live up to the values you purport to, to stand up for. Thanks, Salem. And I, I do want to remind folks the Foundation for Middle East Peace and MEI are both foundations. We are not engaging in lobbying. Uh, the views expressed by the panel are their views, and we're very happy and proud to bring them to you today. Um, we're going to close it out here at exactly 1.15. Well done, folks, right on time. Um, on behalf of the Foundation for Middle East Peace and the Middle East Institute, I want to thank our participants, Shireen, Salem, and Hagai, for a truly um, excellent and very powerful discussion. 
And with that, we'll end today. So thank you very much. 